0: Hello, and welcome back to Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion. This week, we welcome New York Times best-selling author Earl Swift to the show. He recently released a new book, Across the Airless Wilds, the first major history of NASA's lunar Buggy. We're also going to hear about NASA's latest success story as the beloved Hubble Space Telescope is successfully repaired and ready to continue exploring the cosmos. We're also going to journey out together to Venus, looking at the ultimate source of phosphine in the atmosphere of our planetary neighbor. Finally, we learn a possible answer to a 40-year-old mystery about the king of the solar system, Jupiter. The Hubble Space Telescope is now repaired, making for the latest success story from NASA. A voltage regulator controlling a payload computer on board Hubble Detected an anom- anomaly on 13th of June, shutting down the orbiting telescope. Engineers switched Hubble over to a backup payload here, and science instruments turned themselves on over the course of several days. The 30-year-old space telescope should soon return to full operating condition. In September of 2020, researchers announced finding phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus. Now, this gas is mostly produced by biological processes here on Earth, suggesting phosphine seen on Venus might be a sign of primitive life in the upper, upper temperate zones of that hellish planet. A new study, however, finds that this phosphine may in fact be the result of chemical reactions driven by volcanic eruptions on our neighboring world. For four decades, astronomers have witnessed powerful emissions of x-rays and other electromagnetic radiation at the poles of Jupiter. However, the cause of these events remained unanswered. Researchers at University College London recently examined data taken at the same time from Earth orbit and at Jupiter. Finding waves in Jupiter's powerful magnetic field likely drive charged particles into the atmosphere of the planet, creating the iridescent displays.
1: Looking deep into the universe, we see backwards in time. And the oldest light in the universe holds secrets to how everything around us will, one day, end. Meanwhile, stars, planets, and galaxies dance in an intricate ballet, occasionally giving birth to life. We are fledgling species just beginning to visit other worlds we are a way for the universe to understand itself the cosmic companion strives to bring the universe down to earth and we depend on your help to make it happen for information on subscriptions and ways to donate to this program please visit the cosmic thank you next up
0: we welcome earl swift to the show talking about NASA's winter buggy and his new book across the airless wilds. This week on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, we're happy to talk with New York Times bestselling author, Earl Swift. He has just uh, released a new book called Across the Airless Wilds. It's the first major history of NASA's lunar roving vehicle, better known as the Lunar Buggy. Welcome to the show, Earl. Thank
2: you, James. Glad to be here.
0: Just tell us, uh, what is it that inspired you to write this book?
2: Well, I I turned 13 years old the day that Apollo 15 landed on the moon in July of 1971, and uh, I have a pretty sharp recollection of that mission, maybe because of that, uh, and of the, the two missions that followed, and I have very, very little recollection of the, uh, of the earlier ones, including Apollo 11, which is the opposite of, of the world at large, I think. Uh, the, uh, the later Apollo missions have dimmed in the the shadow cast by Apollo 11, by that first, that first moon landing, and, um, but I, anyway, as a teenager, I paid attention uh, for the first time, really, to the uh, to the Apollo program, beginning with, with 15. And, uh, you know, part of that was the fact that I was a teenager and occasionally reading a newspaper. Uh, lived in Houston, so the, we had moved to Houston uh, recently, and there was that. Um, but mostly it was because of one piece of gear that the astronauts on that mission took with them, and that was a microscopic folding aluminum go-kart and they took a <laughs> car and uh i just thought that was amazingly cool and, and enjoyed uh the photos that i saw of the rover in action and you know it always seemed to be in the background every shot taken on that mission practically you know the, the astronauts were very enamored of it as well and they took a lot of pictures of their of their ride and uh so i, I guess that's uh, that's the origin story for the idea uh, and so when my editor at HarperCollins, Collins, who's uh, uh, every bit as big a geek as I am, came to me back in the spring of 2019 and said, you know, I've been thinking it might, might be an interesting story to to look into the lunar rover. He needed to say no more than that. And, um, yeah, that that's where it started.
0: Yeah. So do you think that, you know, you're talking about, you know, you're so excited about it because you're a teenager. Do you think that the American love of cars played a role in the development of the Rover?
2: You know, that, I think that was the supposition at the time. You know, we're the most automotive people on earth. So of course we would take a car to the moon. I mean, it made perfect sense. But no, uh, I don't think so. I think that uh, visionaries who, the visionaries who really kind of uh, uh, foresaw the, the moon missions decades ahead, um, recognized right from the start that lunar mobility was going to be an issue. And uh, you need look only as far as the uh, series of stories that Werner von Braun participated in and putting together in Collier's magazine in 1952 to see that. His contributions to that series were a couple of stories that detailed what the first moon mission might look like. And front and center in those stories was what he called a moon car, which looked nothing like the rover we got in Apollo, but, uh, but it did recognize that getting astronauts across the, the broken lunar surface was, was something that would have to be done by machine. You know, his, his rovers were enormous uh, Caterpillar tractor tank-like vehicles with pressurized Pressurized cabins, uh, in which astronauts would be able to take off their spacesuits and travel in shirt-sleeved comfort, and they'd be able to cover hundreds of miles uh, in these things. And of course, the Apollo River was a bit more modest than that, but uh, but it achieved the same the same end. Yeah,
0: and you know, um, speaking about the earlier designs and thoughts about it. You know, I mean thoughts of moon cars and have been going around science fiction since before we took to the air. Right, yeah, that's and absolutely true. Yeah, and so what role did science fiction play in, in the development of, of this rover?
2: Well, I mean, I, I guess you can make the argument that science fiction is inspiration, you know, uh, for, for what comes later, but um, I'm not sure that it had a heck of a lot of a contribution, in this case, at least not a direct one. Uh, rovers have started appearing in science fiction as early as 1901, which as you mentioned, is before the Wright Brothers flew. And, uh, you know, continued uh, to figure prominently in, in science fiction stories through the 20s, 30s, 40s. And von Braun's piece was really the first nonfiction treatment of a rover, if you can call a futuristic piece like that nonfiction. <laughs> uh, that that I'm aware of, anyway, and uh, it's funny because the this hulking, multi-ton behemoth of a moon car that he he envisioned so big, in fact, that it would require its own rocket to reach the moon, right. uh, became kind of the, uh, uh, the the basis for NASA's thinking of what a moon car would look like for the next decade uh, mm-hmm. and beyond. Really, when you look at the the initial rover studies that were contracted out of the Marshall Space Flight Center in the early 1960s. They were for what was called a mobile laboratory, then the MoLab. And this was just, just as Von Brown had prognosticated. It was, a, um, it was on wheels, but otherwise was the same big, halting, pressurized sort of vehicle that he had foreseen. And uh, it was only because it would require its own Saturn V to get to... Get to where it was going. That that it was eventually eventually put on the back burner uh, as oh, maybe a little bit too much rover for the time.
0: All right, and you talked about the about the wheels, and you know, but some of the early designs they actually looked at using tracks like tanks, and that would you know seem to be a logical. Thing. Yeah. So what, what where, where were the advantages? How did they choose to go with this six-wheel system or you know, this wheel system over over well, tracks? Uh,
2: I guess uh, you can credit one guy in particular and that was a, uh, a Polish uh, immigrant named M.G. Greg Becker who uh, who came to the United States to work for the uh, Detroit Arsenal as a mobility specialist and, and Becker is a guy who should be more of a household name than he is. Uh, he, he invented the engineering discipline of terra mechanics, which is the study of the, the uh, relationship between vehicles and the ground over which they travel. So he studied treads and, and you know, uh, different sorts of wheel surfaces and, and all this to, to marry the right sort of motive device to various forms of, of ground ranging from loose mud to you know, to, to sand, to quicksand, to whatever. Uh, he started looking into lunar mobility after Sputnik. Late 50s, he, got, he kind of got the moon bug, and he uh, and an engineer who worked for him by the name of Ferenc Pavliks, a Hungarian refugee, uh, studied, uh, did their initial studies and came to the conclusion pretty quickly that although a tank trade probably offered some slight, Uh, advantages over a wheel. If you had a a wheel uh, in any comparison, um, a wheel did almost as well, and it was infinitely simpler and a heck of a lot lighter. And that the advantages posed by the, or offered by the the track simply weren't substantial enough to justify the extra weight and complexity. So he he started advocating uh, going with a pretty conventional vehicle setup with wheels, in the in the very early 1960s, well ahead of most other people.
0: Well, and you know, as of July 9th, when we're when we're recording this, uh, across the airless wild, is now number two on Amazon's best-selling books about space flight. What is it about the lunar buggy in that really attracts us so?
2: Well, I think that it it's not, well, I'm, I'm sure people are interested in the rover, at least I hope they are, but I think it's also that uh, it was transformative in what it brought to Apollo's 15 through 17, and it's those missions, I think, that have attracted people's uh, attention and, and brought them to the book, uh, because what the rover did was it remade what was possible to accomplish in three days on the lunar surface. It completely revamped Apollo missions to the moon to the to the point that uh, when you compare the first three landings with the latter three landings it's almost as if they were derived from different programs altogether and, and let me give you an example uh, Apollo 11. Uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin land in the sea of tranquility it's a flat featureless lunar desert not offering a lot of visual interest that's for sure and uh, in their stay on the lunar surface all of their travels would fit inside of a football field with a lot of yardage to spare. The farthest either of them ventured from the lunar module was about 65 yards. And that came at the very end of, of their EVA when Armstrong jogged out to the edge of the crater to get some last-minute samples and, and pictures. Uh, fast forward two years to late July, early August of 1971, Dave Scott and Jim Irwin land in the Hadley-Apennine region, a a, a, a place without that earthly equivalent really, a, a, an undulating plain surrounded by mountains bigger than the Himalayas. Uh, on one side is a, a gorge a mile wide and a thousand feet deep and over the course of three days and three EVAs they traveled more than 17 miles and explored an area, you know, 20 times bigger, 30 times bigger than uh, Apollo 11 had. They were able to sample from all of the various landforms around them, which was something that the Apollo astronauts, you know, the 11 astronauts couldn't do. They wound up, because they had the the rover and the range it offered, uh, they were able to basically uh, do the equivalent of of several Apollo 11 missions in terms of the science. And the other advantage they enjoyed was that um, you know, Armstrong and Erwin, or I'm sorry, Armstrong and uh, and Aldrin, when we saw them bouncing around on TV as kind of indistinct white blobs, looked like they were having a lot of fun, you know, by right. hop, yeah. wearing the yeah. long leg, you know, straight leg bloke. But the fact is that they were wearing a spacesuit uh, that was kind of like wearing 20 raincoats, one over the other, and then having that heavy garment, pump full of air to the stiffness of an all-season radial. It was hard to move. It It was really hard to move. You layer on top of that the fact that you're wearing a a suit that weighs more than you do, most of it in the backpack. Uh, You can't see your own feet from inside your helmet. And then you have the weirdness of moving for the first time in one-sixth gravity, which despite all the training and and simulations on Earth is something you really can't replicate exactly. Uh, It made simple movement real work and that work elevated their metabolic rates which caused them to burn through the air and the cooling water in their backpacks at an accelerated rate so they couldn't stay outside as long as they might have you contrast that with with apollo 15. these guys drove wherever they went that was that was challenging from a driving standpoint but it was it was not physically taxing at all they'd get out they'd do science uh you know work hard while they were doing that but then they get back into the rover and they had a cool down built into into their schedule as they drove to the next science stop and so they were able to conserve their air and cooling water and stay out you know much longer so that the rover not only gave them additional range it vastly expanded the amount of time they had to do the work hmm.
1: You're listening to Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, a podcast focused on making science accessible to everyone, including weekly interviews with groundbreaking scientists. We depend on support from fans like you, helping us bring science news and education directly to listeners around the globe. Visit us at thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support for information on subscriptions and other ways you can help support this program. Subscriptions start at just 99 cents a month. Show your love of astronomy and space exploration by visiting thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support today.
0: Hi there, this is James Maynard from The Cosmic Companion. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, our podcast is put out through Anchor FM. If you've ever wanted to have to do your own podcast, they're a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, Anchor gives you a chance to uh, put get your podcast together with all the tools in one place. And um, you can do it from your phone or a computer. And they're going to help you get distributed out to all the major platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it. And so, best of all, Anchor's all free. How cool, huh? Anyway, if you want to check it out, go download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Clear skies. And, you know, the... Well, first, I'm just picturing, you know, the lunar vehicle, you know, if it were, you know, done today back in... But you know, back with that culture, I'm just you know imagining it all being decked out like a monkey's mobile.
2: <laughs> we showed <laughs> a
0: great deal of restraint. <laughs> yes. Astronauts, you know, with their you know Peter Torque wakes on. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, you know, one thing I, I love about your book is the fact that um, you know you talk about you know you have all these. Conversations going on in there. You know, these interviews, you really get inside the head of people um, who are making the decisions. How, how did you how did you assemble these these conversations and these thought processes as they happened
2: Well, uh, a couple of things. I was I was gratified to learn uh, once I embarked on the project that a great many of the principals who were involved in the conception, design, and Actually, driving the rover, were still alive and were sharp as attack and willing to talk to me, eager to talk to me. So there was that. Um, and They were great sources of information and um, very candid about the uh, challenges and problems that they encountered along the way to to putting the rover on the moon, along with the you know the ultimate success of the thing. They weren't afraid to, to really talk about how difficult it was because it was difficult. Uh, The other thing is that NASA, God love it, never threw away a piece of paper and all of that paper is waiting for anyone who wants to read it and has the the time to read it um, in the National Archives and in uh, special collections at university libraries around the country. So I was, uh, I found most of what I needed at the National Archives in Atlanta. Also found some stuff at the National Archives in Fort Worth. Uh, Found Sonny the the NASA uh, Marshall Space Flight Center's uh, choice to to lead the Rover program uh, found all of his personal papers at the University of Alabama Huntsville. That's amazing! So uh, you yeah, uh, know, between all of that uh, and a lot of time just uh, bolting vast tracks together and then trying to whittle it down to it, you know, to their essence, um, I uh, was able to put it together. Assembly is, is the right word, by the way, when you use that. That's exactly what this is. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of left brain just construction to, uh, to the writing process, and um, a lot of it is throwing stuff out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, right. And um, final question,
0: you know, back in, you know, back when, you know, the, you uh, know roving vehicle was being designed, somebody looked at gm's work at the time and said ooh vega we have to get people we have to get the people in who designed that in on this project how did that happen
2: well i thank god the Vega wasn't on the market yet um, <laughs> they belong in just at about the same time that rover did um you know this is gm did its space work out of a little Defense Research Lab, uh, in Santa Barbara, California, that had really very little connection to Detroit and what Detroit was turning out. I've owned two 1969 General Motors products, both those old, Oldsmobiles, and, uh, I loved those cars. I still remember them very fondly, but would I climb into one of them and drive nearly five miles away from the lunar module and depend on one of those Oldsmobiles to get me back <laughs> to my one-way home? Probably not. Um, I think that, uh, General Motors had done some of the most impressive advanced work in space, you know, in lunar mobility out there. Uh, Becker and Pathlex were kind of the the two biggest brains, you know, in, in that area of uh, of inquiry. Now, they had a lot of competition from companies like Bendix and Grumman, uh, and even Chrysler got into the game. But, uh, but the General Motors that put the rover together had perfected pieces of the thing and over the course of the previous decade. So for instance, the rover's signature wire mesh wheels. You know, it had wheels that were that were made of zinc-coated stainless steel piano wire woven into a tight, tight mesh. These things weighed only 12 pounds a piece. And they answered the dilemma of, okay, how do you get a wheel that acts like a pneumatic tire, you know, in shock absorption and traction? Isn't a pneumatic tire because that won't last, you know, more than seconds in the lunar environment. How do you get that? Uh, how do you how do you build something like that? And and Pavlix actually came up with the, the wire mesh wheel. They had developed uh, a way of marrying a fast spinning electric motor. that generated very little power. I mean, the motors on uh, the, the rover had a motor in each wheel hub, but it. Each one only generated a quarter horsepower. So we're talking, you know, weed whacker territory uh, in terms <laughs> of motor brawn for the whole thing. But they married it to a, a really ingenious little transmission called a harmonic drive that they had been tinkering with for the better part of a decade. So they brought in a, they brought in a lot of experience, uh, a lot of trial and error that they had put into various previous uh, iterations of the rover idea, like the MoLab, uh, and then kind of brought them all together in, in what we got in the, in the finished Apollo rover. And of course, Pavlik's, the most important development Pavlik's may have done, because it it decided whether or not a rover could go at all, was that he figured out how to make the whole thing fold up so that it would fit into a little uh, cargo bay on the on the rover module. And, and You know, when you see how the thing folded, it's uh, It's diabolically simple and yet complex beyond imagining at the same time. Real origami.
0: Right, right. And of course, they're doing that now with, for instance, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is all this magnificent mirror is all folded up to fit inside an Arian 5 rocket.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's like watching the old board game Mousetrap, you know, go through it it's movements. It's, 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 impressive and fun.
0: And, uh, speaking of impressive, that was, uh, Earl Swift, author of Across the Airless Wilds. One fantastic book just came out July 6th from Custom House. Thanks. Thanks for being on the show, Earl. Love to have you back again anytime.
2: James, thanks so much for having me.
0: Next week, we have a pair of special guests as we learn about fast radio bursts with astronomer and CHIME member Caitlin Shin. We're also going to talk with Dr. Stephen Kane, astronomer at the University of California, Riverside. We'll be looking at how private space flights, including the recent flight of Richard Branson to the edge of space, benefit science, and our quest for a better world. Please make sure to visit with us then. Join us each week on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion as we bring the cosmos down to Earth and scientists directly into your homes with fun, informative interviews. Subscribe to our VIP newsletter to see every episode of this show one day early. We depend on support from viewers just like you. Uh, for ways to help support this program, including VIP subscriptions, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support. You can also view every episode of this show at thecosmiccompanion.tv. Please, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your wonder alive. If you enjoyed this episode of Astronomy News about Cosmic Companion, (laughs) please download and share the episode on YouTube. Facebook video or any major podcast provider. For more details on space and astronomy news, please visit the or the